Hello everyone, welcome to Intimate Animation, brought to you by the online animation magazine Squiggly.com. This series covers animation that takes on adult themes of love, relationships, and sex. So steal yourself as there's some frank discussion ahead. Ooh. I'm reading a, um, it's a Guardian article uh, that just popped up on my feed. It's very unusual. UK to censor online videos of non-conventional sex acts. Which you would think... Maybe Obviously. But you'd think that implies illegal sex acts. But when you sort of read more, it's actually, they just mean a bit weird. <laughs> like a bit sort of outside of the norm. This is like an example of... Um, like splosh? What splosh? Uh, people sitting on cakes and food and just sort of wiggling around in food. Did you just make that up? No, that's the thing. There's a porn site called Slosh or Splosh or something like that. How did you come across this? Like on the school bus when I was a kid, like people just talking about they porn sites. Oh, they were talking about it. Yeah. Okay. So, no, so you didn't actually see this website? No. A girl I knew once uh, was at a party. It was one of these parties. It was a bit like uh, Midnight Cowboy. For some reason, someone was going around with a camera like, interviewing people at this party and, like, asking really edgy questions, you know, kids in college, that kind of thing, and came up to this girl. I guess I must have bleeped out her name. I guess they were asking everyone what, like, their sexual fantasies were, and so this girl, I don't think she really had one. Well, she said she didn't really, she just thought of something that I guess she'd seen somewhere or read somewhere, and she's like, well, gosh, my sexual fantasy, um, I guess it's, like, to do it on top of a giant cheesecake. <laughs> okay, uh, and I guess because like it's a fantasy, like it's a cheesecake the size of a king size bed, you know, a cheesecake that wouldn't exist in I real life. I just want to eat the bed. Well, exactly. That's, I want to shag on it. So I guess there was a guy with her who really kind of fancied her, and they, I guess, were friends with benefits. And but I guess he wanted it to be something more. So he thought he would win her over by making her fantasy come true, and. So she came home one day to find he had bought the biggest cheesecake he could find, which was about 20 inches across. So not not the cheesecake of her fantasies, just a really large, cumbersome like cheesecake for a party, I guess. And so, I guess to not seem ungrateful, they f***ed on the cheesecake. And it was a completely unsatisfying, you know, just three boyfriends later and bits of biscuits are still showing up places. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Why something... Is this happening? I really like the colour swatch. But... Oh, yeah, this is something I've queued up on the TV. I'll show you in a minute. Oh, I like it. I'm not sure if you like what it's going to turn it's, into. It's my but, two oh. favourite colours. <laughs> there you go. So, weird, weird. outsider <laughs> sexual interests, I guess, are going to be censored in the UK. I'll just have a, I'll give you a read of this. Pictures and videos that show spanking, whipping, or caning that leave marks, uh, sex acts involving urination, female ejaculation, or menstruation, as well as sex in public, are likely to be caught by the ban, in effect turning back the clock on Britain's censorship regime to the pre-internet era. Again, I'm going to sound like a prude. I didn't realize that at least two of those things were a thing until I read that just now. Well, I didn't realise that there was menstruation porn. Oh, that's not really that hard to believe, though, really, is well, it? Well, I believe it. I'm just saying I hadn't considered it until now. I guess not. Call me a sad old man. But well, there you go. Anyway, I thought that was rather apropos, because there's something um, 
we saw recently. There was a related article here um, written by a woman called Pandora Blake. Um, Restricting niche porn sites is a disaster for people with marginalized sexualities. This is a woman who runs her own website. It's a BDSM website called Dreams of Spanking. There's a little free plug for you, dear. I want to send the message that there's nothing wrong with being kinky and to help isolated individuals feel less alone. Which, while it wouldn't be something I would actively seek out, I guess, again, it's just not my kink. I don't think there's any real harm in it. I think that it's... A, it's I, I, can, I see a lot of positives in having a platform for the, the quote-unquote edgier stuff that's out there. Anyway, it all sort of brought to mind something that I uh, brought back with me from Manchester. Hello. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> what did you bring back? Uh, the film I showed you this morning, uh, Tundi's film. Oh, okay. That sounded really gross. I was like, should I have known about this? Uh, I, mean, yeah. I, I probably brought back a whole litany of things. <laughs> I have these weird welts on my face. I've no idea where they came from. Manchester. <laughs> Just Manchester welts. It was a, a lovely week at the Manchester Animation Festival, and probably my favorite program as far as the like shorts and stuff go was the uh, short shorts competition, which was really, really tiny films, you know, just a couple minutes long each. So they really crammed a whole bunch of those in there. And so there's one film called Tabuk, directed by Dario Van Tree, and produced by our buddy Tundi Vollenbroek, who is also the... Uh, one of the people involved in Click, the animation festival over in Amsterdam. And um, apparently, according to this, this film is currently opening for Bridget Jones's Baby in Dutch Pathé Cinemas. Ah, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a really lovely film. Maybe we'll um, we'll talk to the, uh, the director down the line. By the way, this is... Uh, <laughs> welcome to Intimate Animation. This is Ben Mitchell. <laughs> and uh, Laura Beth. Hello, Laura Beth. Hi! I kind of figure you know who we are by now. We forgot to do this bit. <laughs> this will be, I guess, the last episode of the first series of Intimate Animation, but I think we want to do more, right? Yeah! Excellent. We have a big, like, long, long list of, like, other people that we want to kind of talk with. I think that there are other podcasty things we want to kind of start implementing. So this was sort of a trial run, I think a successful trial. I think that the reactions are really positive, and I definitely know we want to do more next year. So this is a lovely little film that uh, you can catch a trailer for, or you can maybe catch it at festivals. Maybe you saw it at Manchester. It's so cool. It's a film. Well, why don't you you describe it? So it's a film about a woman who's in a bookshop, and the kind of implication is that she is interested in books about sex or relationships. But each time she uh, picks up a book, everyone in the bookshop, like, judges her really harshly about what she's reading. So this girl's picking up books like, you know, those uh, you know, vampire romance type thing, and she's all like, ooh, this might be... And then someone kind of snootily looks at her. Everyone's and, all like, ugh. And so she gets a bit self-conscious and happens upon a book that's specifically more about BDSM, and then kind of that prompts her to come out of her shell a bit. Yeah. Uh, but now I won't sort of say more than that, because that's when the film kind of gets very kind of funny and yeah. interesting. But there's some beautiful, like, colour theory and design styles going on in. Animated films are always good when it's a good combination of both funny story or entertaining story, style, colour, and very good animation. Like, it has a, a real, it uses um, overlapping action a lot, which always makes everything feel more, like, luxurious. It goes with the theme of the animation as well. 
Definitely, I think. The lovely little gag at the end involving the, the door of the bookshop. Yeah. Yeah, keep your eyes open for that one. It's really, really nice. It's, uh, good stuff coming uh, from Studio Pupil, I believe, is the production house there. Uh, but that was what this article kind of put me in mind of again, uh, particularly that line, you know, there's nothing wrong with being kinky um, and to help people feel less alone. Uh, and then, in fact, it could do harm to criminalize sites that are a lifeline to people with marginalized sexualities, much like the people who are sneering in the bookshop in this film. And that kind of makes people a bit self-conscious, maybe makes them feel a bit like there's something wrong with them. Yeah. It's one of those things. It's uh, I have a friend who does a lot of like fetish nights and drawing, and she's into the whole ropes, string, plastic. S and M. Yeah, but she also is an S and M illustrator, I guess. Right. But she she has a day job like most people do, and I guess someone at work found out that that's what she did, like in her spare time, and sort of told their boss about it. It was really weird and. She didn't feel awkward about what it is that she did, but she just found it annoying that a friend of hers would have gone behind her back, which is unfair. It's always the people you least expect. I mean, you do get the people that sort of just dress like they're on their way to a kink party (laughs) all the time. But I always like it when it's someone really, really shy and retiring, and you're like, oh, oh, I'm into bondage. And you're like, oh, okay, you're wearing a a plaid skirt and a cardigan right now. That's a bit weird. It's always like (laughs) primary school teachers. Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. Because to deal with that every day, you must... You must have to let off steam somewhere. Well, I know that that's a big thing for... Uh, I knew a girl who was a dominatrix, and she had found that a lot of her clientele, her male clientele, were men in positions of power in their industry. Yeah. Uh, leaders of men, like big business owners, people who spend the whole day bossing people about. And then, I guess as, a big, as, I guess as part of their sort of sexual makeup... As a result of that, or possibly, I don't know where it would all sort of go back to, but the outlet for them was to reverse that situation, was to find a situation where they are the one being bossed about to an extreme degree, to a point perhaps of physical humiliation that is, in fact, not humiliating, but quite gratifying. Yeah. Or both, or whatever. Yeah. And I always found that quite interesting, because it made quite a lot of sense. So that's something to kick off the podcast with a little uh, recommendation from the Manchester Animation Festival. And uh, I think this is the first, yeah, this is the first podcast going out since the festival. And the squiggly events went down very well. The quiz was its usual kind of uh, Hunger Games-esque, you know, battle toward the uh, prize table. Anyway, there's a live podcast, which you can check it on our Facebook page if uh, you didn't catch it live. Lots of good stuff, so... Um, and actually, in the live podcast, we uh, interviewed Terry Matthews. Yeah. And did we talk about her film on this before? I think so. Because right. definitely that was a film that kind of teases on the edge of being a, a film about sex. And certainly there's a sequence in it that deals with alternative lifestyles. And that this guy kind of realizes that whatever his thing is, it's not that. Yeah. When I talked to her, she said it was just like a comedy I mean, it's, a, it's like a relationship comedy, I guess. She offers some, some good perspectives in that live podcast, definitely. So, And uh, also we had uh, Tom Angel, who was the sound guy for the Brothers McLeod, and the other NFTS guy who did Perched, Liam Harris. A nice little panel of film discussion there. I want to show you something else I saw this morning. 
Um, that's what uh, is paused on the TV right now, but I thought I would show this to you and uh, get your take on it. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it for a reason that will make itself quite obvious, but uh, let's, let's bang it on. <laughs> okay, this isn't actually the video I thought it was. Um, but these are definitely the stars of the video. This, I guess, is like a sort of series of like gameplay tests for a game called Genital Jousting. Is this an actual game you can play? I believe it is uh, out on Steam shortly or now. Uh, why don't you describe what you're seeing? I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like Snake. It's like Snake, but with more penetration. Uh, this is a game developed by a company, I think, called Free Lives. It's basically you play as these multicolored, wormy penises that have, like, little buttholes in them. Like, it's, it's weird. They're like a sort of... Dildo come fleshlight. Yeah, that's a very good description. They're kind of, yeah, they're, they're the penetrator and the penetratable. And it's a bit like Snake, where you have to stop yourself from eating the tail, except the tail is the goal? <laughs> well, it's like a bunch of mini-games. I'm going to find the other trailer on my phone because it's not playing on the TV. So this is the early access trailer for Genital Jousting. I mean, it's quite sweet in a way. It's weird that they're wearing clothes. <laughs> I'm not crazy about the sounds. Like, the sounds make it a bit... John took a moment to stare into the void of his own existence. I have no idea what the voiceover is about either. <laughs> the, the, the sort of calm narration. I guess maybe it's like commentary on the games. But they're like, it's like a series of like little sports games and things and like you can get caught up in one another, but Aww. this is the one. See? Ew. <laughs> so it's teams of controllable multicolored penises and you have to round dachshunds up into like pens and I guess the person who rounds up the most dachshunds wins. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. You Why love would they make this? Why not? It's <laughs> a real question. I thought you said you wanted this. As you've changed your mind. I do, but I don't know why. <laughs> I want it, but I at least I didn't make it. <laughs> well, there you go. See, that's that's the service they're providing. They made it so we wouldn't have to. It's weird when you see so many cartoon multicolored penises on a screen. Is how like parasitic they look. They look like a bunch of tapeworms. Try to one to watch out for. So, speaking of genitals, and genital depictions and animation, we are going down that path once again. Uh, it's been something of a, of a recurring theme in this series, but that was sort of inevitable, I suppose, when you're doing a show about animation and love and sex. So what I wanted to do for this last episode, because in the first episode, of course, we had Tram, uh, the Michaela Pavlatova film, which was a few years old, and I thought it would be nice to talk about another film that was uh, a little bit older, had been doing the rounds a little bit longer. I keep forgetting how old this film actually is. In my brain, I keep thinking it's like 2010. It's actually from like 2000. So wow. It's, and we just watched it again. It really doesn't look like it's from 2000. It looks like it could have been made very recently. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we're talking about Andreas Hakeid's Ring of Fire, which is uh, part of a series of films that he's produced with Film Builder. Yeah very, yeah, very, very contemporary look to it. It looks very digital. It actually, it, there are digital processes and some are very identifiable, certainly toward the end. But actually most of the, the layouts and animation and stuff weren't digital. They, um, 
that very elaborate detailed line effect for example that was made that was achieved from having um painted cells and then like scratching the etching into the paint um it's a very interesting effect it really reminds me of uh, regina pessoa's work who i'm not sure if you're familiar with her no. She's a really nice NFB film called Carly the Little Vampire. I know the film. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. It looks like... A- lines and lines and lines. <laughs> it looks like lino cut. Yeah. Which yeah. is why I love it. Also reminds me a bit of Eric Drucker, who is like a scratch uh, board. board artist. Does a lot of graphic novel stuff. Although I would imagine Regina Pessoa's films, certainly the ones that I'm thinking of, came after ring of fire given you know how much older it it, it is that i keep forgetting and uh, andreas arcade if you are not familiar you will definitely have seen some of his films certainly in 2010 he had a film that was very very popular and is still played quite a lot called love and theft uh which is this kind of onslaught of contemporary iconic logos and faces and things like that you're familiar with that film right yeah the constantly morphing head one yeah and I think that very stark graphical style that you see in Love and Theft is kind of brewing in Ring of Fire. Uh, Ring of Fire is kind of a sibling to a couple of other films, one that came before and one that came after. The one that came before is called We Lived in Grass, uh, and he made that, I think, about five years before, and that's like a father and child story, and it's sort of a comedy-slash-tragedy kind of thing. I don't think I've ever seen it. We should check it out. It's um, It similarly kind of deals with some of the sort of sexual slash misogynistic themes that... Uh, he brings up about this film. Yeah. You know, it's a father whose sort of wisdom is, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but his sort of line to his son is, you know, all women are whores and all men are soldiers. This very kind of bizarre sort of... And then the father ends up having testicular cancer. It's a quite odd, complex film. And the last film of the three is interesting because there's no real sexual themes to my recollection in it at all. It's called The Runt, and it's about the father and son, possibly a different father and son, but certainly a visually similar uh, dad character. They're on a farm, and the kid is told to kill the runt of this litter that's born. And instead, the kid, he does a deal, the kid, like, you know, takes care of it, but then still has to kill it at the end of, like, a year or something, and... And that was interesting. It was, um, mm. and uh, I saw that in, at Encounters recently at a, as part of a film builder retrospective. And Andreas does other sort of other films as well. He does some films for like you know kids. He has this whole series about this character Tom, which you may have seen. They're very yellow films, so you'd like them. <laughs> Tom, as it turns out, is a real guy. I met him in Annecy this year. What? Yeah. <laughs> and his most recent film, I believe, was called Nuggets. And that was, do you remember this one? The bird walking along the ground and he's eating these nuggets and yeah. makes him really high. Yeah. And he sort of finds another one and it's kind of this law of diminishing returns like each time. I remember that. So Ring of Fire is a particularly sort of stark film. One thing that we haven't really gone into as far as the people who have been on the podcast are male perspectives of sex and animation. And I don't know if you'd kind of thought about this i think that it's that's not like a coincidence i think that i find women's perspectives on sex and animation ultimately more interesting 
because I find women's perspectives on sex more interesting as someone who's had to live inside the brain of a guy my whole life. Yeah. That doesn't mean that, you know, films that men make about sexual themes are less valid. I think there are a lot of very, very good ones. And, you know, when we bring this back as a longer series, perhaps... <laughs> Do the men's special. <laughs> well, I think maybe maybe there'll be more of a kind of balance of it. I think certainly, because there's a big, big, long list of films that we wanted to talk about, and the ones that happen to be sort of right at the top of the list happen to be films by women. So it's nice that we get one guy in series one, you know. I think it's kind of interesting because both genders fall into tropes within their own, within the sex mm-hmm. universe of films. And interestingly, with this film and other films that I would consider like a sex film, most filmmakers don't consider the films they're making a sex film when they're making it. Yeah. Mm. The only person I've ever known to outwardly say, yes, I was making a sex film is Signe because she is very openly sexual. I don't know. I think that if we look back at the people that we've talked to in this series... It's because I know that, say, Joanna Quinn, even though her films have like sexual elements to them, she has said that... I don't make sexual... That she doesn't, yeah. Well, it's more that they're just... they. I guess most people don't see sex as a separate thing. They see sex life. as part of life. It's like mm. if you had someone eating in the background. Yeah. It's the same with... Oh, God, what's her name? Michaela Pavlovita. Pavlovita. When she talks about her other films, sex is always sort of there, but it's like someone in the background is talking about it or whatever. I'm, I'm misremembering that completely. I thought the whole point of what Sacre Bleu were commissioning were films that dealt with that theme. They were. So it is about, obviously it is a sexual film. It can't really not be. It's about a woman getting off on a tram. But mm. it's um, her reaction was more that like it was meant to be more like rhythmic and about pattern. And, and using the, the fantasy and yeah, the sexuality, and sexuality as a sexuality catalyst a... for the rhythm. Yeah. I see. No, that makes more sense, yeah. And when men make sexual films, more often than not, it tends to be about it tends to be aggression mm-hmm. or about telling a story about their mothers, actually quite often. Where women's films tend to be about rhythm, pattern, and like the actual act of having sex or education and educating you about sex, or about having sex, or being open to having sex, or whatever. There's a lovely film that I don't think we talked about. Someone I definitely want to chat to at some point. The film is called Sunday Lunch. I think yeah. that I think that was a guy director. Yeah, that's and, what I mean. Yeah. It's about his talking to his mum. Yeah, like his different... It's a family get-together at Sunday Lunch, and it sort of starts with the guy, and then it sort of goes into the various family members, and sex keeps rearing its head. Yeah. And certainly the mother's kind of... Mourning the loss of of her, like, overt sexuality, but kind of keeping a certain flame kindled in there. Um, through her son. Th- through the... Uh, there's a sort of resentment toward the, the son's youth, I think, and his yeah. ability to have sex be a more... Casual uh, thing. Casual part of his identity. That was a wonderful film. But uh, that's what I mean. It tends to be... Men tend to make it either slightly more narrative or... They do, like, this film is quite aggressive. Uh, Ring of Fire, I mean. Yeah. And the only other person I really have looked into as someone that deals with sex in his films is Bill Plimpton, and his films are always... Well, his all of his films are kind of quite aggressive 
and very masculine in their look, their energy. Yeah. All they tend to be about men and women and the difficulties that sex can bring. I guess men deal more with, like, look more at the problems that sex has and women tend to look at the joys of which it can bring. Yeah. Although, I just checked this uh, film, Sunday Lunch, the director was Celine Deveaux. Oh, okay. Um, I think it's because it has a male voiceover. Yeah, yeah. I'm not 100% sure if I... Because I do feel that certainly there have been a lot of... I mean, most of the people that we have talked to, whether or not it's a film about, like, the sexual act, certainly the the sexual components, like Anna's film and Laurie Malipard Traverse's film, they both deal specifically with genitals, you know, and the role of genitals in the sex act, but also the public perception and the taboos and the history and, you know, social standing and things like that. So it's sex as an element, but also a much broader range of perspectives as well. And I think that really does help a film. Say a film that's about sexual fantasy, that is also about music and rhythm and joyfulness and all sorts of things. Uh, A film about, you know, private parts that's also about psychology and about public perception and about changing societal attitudes. Uh, Veronica and Manuela's film you know Ivan's Need and how that's sort of about male lust but then as it kind of progresses and it expands it becomes something you know a lot more significant so with Ring of Fire I think that there's certainly a um, masculine energy to it certainly to begin with these two kind of swaggering cowboy characters rolling on into town it has a very western cinematography in the sense of the aspect ratio and the sort of composition it sort of it pays a little bit of homage to those old types of films, but it very quickly reveals itself to be luxuriating in very bizarre, surreal images of projections, perhaps, of male libido or a kind of male attitude, I suppose, towards sex and women. It's uh, It starts off very caustic, I would say. The two cowboys have a kind of brotherly relationship where one is like the alpha and uh, the other one like admires him and they go into a town and it's full of like I guess it's meant to be like a saloon of like sexual desires and stuff, but it's mostly just like legs plundering penises and yeah, it's, kind of it's a, really a, weird. It's yeah. very like it's like a fever dream of a western. It's like yeah. saloon elements and bordello elements and, and like can can dancing legs with with no uppers and yeah. and like people drinking and then the drink coming back out of them <laughs> kind yeah. of thing. And they're heading towards like I guess like the madam. And they have to, like, do a trick in order to win favour with her. Mm-hmm. The more alpha guy can do it and the the less alpha guy can't. He sees this other girl who's, like, pure and white and naked for some reason. Like the water lady. Yeah. Like the water for her. Yeah. He, I guess, falls for her. But as he goes to, like, make his move, the alpha comes back and sort of takes her. And makes her his... Yeah, to her detriment. Yeah. And certainly... um, And he gets quite violent and aggressive and unpleasant when she just, you know, decides she wants to go. And I think the idea is that she's meant to be like this free spirit. And so she, you know, she's happy to be with someone for a while, but then she wants to be able to go where she pleases and have freedom and stuff. And he ain't having any of that. (laughs) So he knocks her about a bit. And it's sort of left to the other guy, to kind of pick up the pieces a bit and sort of do the right thing. And look after her. Yeah, not kind of swoop in with the same kind of 
like bullheadedness, but actually be the decent person in this particular triangle. Yeah. But then the alpha gets his comeuppance in the end. The impression I got was that certainly the uh, the follower guy is kind of, you know, in thrall of the alpha guy, who oh, reminds me a lot of the, the spy versus spies, the pointy head and the hat and everything, just in terms of design, and then realizes that that's not the kind of person to have an allegiance toward, for whatever reason. And again, just a really, really bold, impressive style that I think has afforded a lot of like mileage, and it's, it stands up in a way that a lot of films that were made around that time just don't nowadays i think the fact that it's very stark black and white line art helps that a lot i think the choice of going black and white helps massively because i feel that era had a had a lot of bad choices when it came to color he also managed to create a style that was very captivating and still and it's sort of i guess it's sort of it continuously enjoys a revolution because everyone always loves line print it's why how if you ever go into liner printing you pretty much can get away with anything because everyone always just likes things that look hand rendered right but it also is a very lovely film and this music is really good in it as well it has that kind of treacly feel to it because it's all spaghetti westerning yeah But it's kind of like moany and whiny, and I think that's why it comes off as an overtly sexual film, not only because of the weird phallic imagery and stuff that happens like throughout, but it does have that kind of point noise that just sounds like being in a bar. Yeah. What's interesting about the film kind of having a love triangle element to it is a story that uh, Andreas will tell in this interview about the circumstances around the production of it, uh, recruiting the fellow who worked on the sound. This is an interview that uh, we've had kicking around for a little while now, but I thought it would be nice to save it for this closing episode. So uh, here's Andreas Arcade reflecting on some of his early misadventures that led to Ring of Fire. You see, I've been brought up in the Bavarian countryside in the 70s, and that was before the internet. And how to say, like, the cultural program is limited in this area. It was very limited. It's like you would have, like, 20 kilometers from where this, from where I've been brought up, there's, like, Magdal am Inn. That's the birthplace of a guy formerly known as Pope Benedict XVI. If you go 20 miles the other side, it's Braunau am Inn. That's the birthplace of a guy known as Adolf Hitler. And that's sort of, like... The cultural setup there. So I was desperately looking for something to connect, and I would found it at this little chapel in this place, Altötting, uh, Holy Mary thing. And you have like the the whole chapel. The outside of the chapel is plastered with hundreds and hundreds of paintings, all centered around the Holy Mary, and they are autobiographic paintings. Like, whenever a tragedy happens to you, you survive the tra- tragedy, you praise the Holy Mary, thank her, thank her for you're still living. So you paint the Holy Mary, paint yourself, for example, you're tr- a farmer that fell under a tractor, you paint yourself on the tractor with your limited abilities, and you put it on the wall for everybody to see. And I was very much inspired by that because I could see, just from the very small age, I could see this connection between the personal myth and the collective myth, right? By putting yourself on the same painting as your goddess, you become part of this collective story. 
and I would say as this was the earliest reference point it's probably the strongest it's all it's a natural thing it's like almost like sort of as if it's pressed in your genes it's like the reference to that and I found the same spirit again when I was a teenager in the comics of Robert Crumb this was a different code if you read that stuff in the early 80s it meant something else than it means today where like the sexuality is like available available everywhere you know like sort of, uh, in these days this guy talking about his story his sexual obsessions his problem with women I thought that's juicy it's a juicy stuff and like I prefer the personal stuff of him I preferred that the most and it was quite encouraging like somebody just take like a little bit of ink splash it on a piece of paper and tell his story now it's a common thing you have like the graphic novels and everything but uh, in these days it was it, quite unique especially where I come from it's like uh, I found that book somewhere at some friend's house whose father had the book I remember I opened up the book and uh, it's called the 17 faces of Robert Crump and I just was used to Mickey Mouse and that stuff right and the first panel on the left top side I still remember that it was like the guy with his glasses weird hair ejaculating out of a out of a house uh, holding some scribbled drawings pornographic drawings while he's ejaculating and it said got everything I need only have to draw it right and this was almost like like I said that would kick off the next 10 12 years or something so that would be in terms of visual arts that would be a strong influence a third thing you could mention probably is the music of the Velvet Underground because this Bavarian mindset I just talked about it's like if you look at the place of my parents it's these stitched sailors on the walls with golden fit golden frames around that and like all sort of like this Bavarian folk thing and I, I've been grown up in this area felt like sort of and this is it right this is it and then I turned on the radio one day my parents been out and turned on the radio it's been we where I come from it's on the Austrian border and the Austrians they had good good radio and there was one hour about the Velvet Underground and the first thing they played was waiting for a man just a guitar coming in and like suddenly like the whole Bavarian mindset faded out I was in New York right I was in New York and with the cool dudes the colors have not been brown anymore they've been gray bluish velvetish right and then they played Waiting for the Man, Sweet Jane and Rock and Roll. There was a three, three songs they played. And like, I immediately went searching for that stuff. I bought the yellow, the banana. That, that was the first one. Just catch it. Obsessively listen to the song. That's the one record I know. I think I know every note of that record, right? Like, so that it's, it's as well like part of your code. I think that would be the main influences from the early days. Later on, there was pulp literature, 
Jim Thompson, I don't know if you're familiar with Jim Thompson, an American writer of the Depression. He exper deeply experienced the poverty of expression and the nastiness that goes ahead with that and how it shapes, how poverty shapes the mindset of man becoming a nasty creature. And he wrote a couple of books. Pop, Pop 1280 is one, A Man in Full. Brilliant stuff and he, he really nails it down with the writing. He got these short sentences that would, and these chapters that would sort of always end up with a, with a, with a high point, with a page-turning thing. Um, probably connected with the spirit of Dostoevsky, but like much more, the names are much simpler, right? And so you can really get into that story. You, 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 you read the first page and you're in the, in the thing. And that's probably it. Before your studies, had you had any sort of inclination toward animation specifically? I did an animated film, yes. I started doing these comics. We did these fan scenes. That was a thing in the 80s. Like, you just like find the copy machine, print your stuff, and then print 500 and sell it. I did one of these comics. It's called Jochen in Search of His Face. So he first goes to the teacher, to the school, try to find his face, learns a lot, don't find anything. So he goes to Franz Josef Strauss. I don't know if you know that name. The Bavarian, deeply corrupt politician of the 80s. Horny for war. Really, he was. He said that like, he was the one in the 60s. In the 60s, he was defense minister. He said, like, we got to get some atomic weapons right now. Right. Fat bloke. Uh, so it, it, he was in there. And the, 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 the catharsis of that story, Jochen in search of his face, was like he go to the Pope, ask for his face at the Pope's place. And the Pope is surrounded by faceless prostitutes. And they start wanking him, like a Robert Crumb style. Right? And he, uh, he would ejaculate into the picture and all that. So I had that comic, and then we had like in school, we had, we had in Bavaria, there's a thing called Facharbeit. It's a special piece of work that you do in one of your subjects, and you can pick yourself the subject. So I said, I'd do an animated film. And so I did a film, 5 minute 40, Jochen in search of his, his face, uh, an adaption of that comic I did. And this art teacher, he was just like very happy for somebody to do such an ambitious thing and never, nobody ever has done an animated film. So he said like, all right, go ahead, do that. And so I did that film and all these Facharbeiten, these works, they, well, they are then they are collected, right, in, uh, at, a, at a cupboard in the secretary. And then in the end, there's a jury of the teachers would have a look at the stuff, give the no dumb numbers and then it's like exhibited in the whole school it's a grand event the parents come along uh, like all the, the vips of the countryside come along and they, they do their thing so i did that animated film including the ejaculation at the crescendo at the, uh, and then this comic was still out right and this somebody let that comic just lie in a cafe and the woman who runs the cafe saw the comic, was deeply annoyed by right? the ejaculating Pope. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do such a thing, right? 
and she gave it to her brother, who was one of the major politicians in Bavaria. And he visited our school, raging, raging, with a comic in his head, like, what's that? And, like, they say this guy is around here, that school. So the art teacher got into trouble because he, they knew he was, like, sort of, you know, he was pushing me and stuff. And then the art teacher got a paranoia. He was just shortly before retiring. It was just all like everything had to go smooth so he get his retirement money and all the stuff. And he got this paranoia vision of this film lying around in the cupboard that will be presented in front of that jury. And he was he getting he getting afraid, right? He sort of said like they see the ejaculating pope. Probably my pension is in danger or something like that. Probably things won't run smooth. So he went to me and said, I got a problem. I cannot, I, I cannot accept your work. It's too dangerous for me. So what can we do? I said, I don't know what shall we do. I mean, I got nothing else. I worked on the thing for four months or something. She said, like, no, we have got to do something. What, what you got? I said, I got a number of self-portraits. He said, very good, right? Bring the self-portraits. So I brought him the self-portraits. He sneaked into the secretary's office at night to get out the, you know, the, the film, put the self-portraits in, went through the official stuff, you know, changed the title and everything. You said, like, fake that story. That was the first. That was the first animated film I've done. Jochen in search of his face. Later on, I applied at art school. The only place I would know you could study animation in Germany with that film. And I watched it with my later professor, Albrecht Ade. And he would watch the whole thing. His face won't move at all, right? And like when the, whole, when the credits were over, he said like, all right, so you'd come over here. And that's, well, that's how I went to Stuttgart. No. And you know, probably know that young man's mind, it's like sort of, it's not... It's like, it, he didn't get his, he doesn't have his act together yet. So on the one side there was a Robert Crumb thing and on the other side I thought like I'd go to Disney, right? Because that's animation, huh? Uh, like you got, in these days, animation, Disney, that's the same thing. That was before Pixar. No. It was, actually it was computer animation just started. Um, so that was originally my goal. Like, Get, do some animated films and then go over to Disney. But while I was studying, I discovered two things. The first thing is like that the bloke is dead for more than 30 years now. So if I go over there, he won't be there anymore. And it would be just like practicing necrophilia. And the other thing was like I got connected with the, with the, at the Stuttgart Animation Festival. I got connected with the animation for grown-ups, grown-up audience, film loy, Quay Brothers, the English, the English crowd, like the whole, the whole stretch between the thing they did with, you know, uh, Claire Kitson did in Channel Four, and the thing that Peter Dougherty did with MTV with all these islands. Uh, that's I suppose like at that time I was lost for Disney. Um, I did this film at, when I was studying. I actually did two films. One was uh, once called The King is Dead, uh, about Fat Elvis, like the last half hour for his la before his last performance, where they, you know, they fill him up with uppers and like, get him in the corset and just move him on the stage. 
<laughs> that was the first one, and then I, then I went to film from the art school to the film school, and I did the film We Lived in Grass, uh, which, which was a mess. But for me, probably the most important film, because you could. This was sort of like an artistic coming out for me. That was the that was the moment where it where things came together for me. Till then, it was all bits and pieces, where the, like a little bit of Disney here, a little bit of grub there, a little bit of stuff. But with this film, we lived in grass. I'd like I could connect with a very simple style, a solvable style, you know, where you don't need a legion of, and an army of people, but 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 where you. Could, you could do it alone if necessary, yeah. and, and I had some deep joy into draw, uh, with drawing these stick figures. And I could, I discovered, like with these simple forms, I could go into any field. I could go into tragedy, if necessary, or I could go into comedy, if possible, right? So it's been able to. It was a reference point from where you could show the whole range of expression. And everything's connected to that simple style from now on. Like even stuff like Ring of Fire was more artificial. It's like so it's rooted in that in the in the reduced mindset. Like the theory, I mean you can only hope your theories are like connected with the audience, but the theory is like the less you put on the picture the more space there is for the audience. Yeah. So, an ideal would be there's nothing on the screen. Yeah. That, that would be an ideal to have, that would be the, the most intense moment. Right? But I haven't achieved that yet. I'm, I'm still trying to move, move towards that thing. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Looking at We Lived in Grass and then later on The Runt. Yes. Um, it seemed that those films had a sort of connection in a way, in the sort of perhaps in the father son. Yes. Thing. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. It's the same characters. The, 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 the uncle in The Runt, the sort of the father in the We Lived in Grass. So you're right, it's connected. The, mind, the mind, mindset is connected. But the, the artistic approach was completely different. So like for we we lifted grass. It was originally not planned as a movie. I just like started to do that drawings from way back from the countryside, you no. Know? And then I'd had like all these drawings, and then there these uncle, the father that gets the testicular cancer. Remember the massive creature that seemed to be the center creature in these drawings. And so I just vaguely connected the drawings and started to move them about. And ended up with a 22-minute film that was much too long. Had to add some monologue, some words, in order for people to understand. Because like, uh, I, I, I was not at the stage to know that if you want to reach an audience, you've got to communicate. Right? I just thought, like, I'll do that drawings. I love them. Like, the, everybody else will love them as well. But uh, it was a painful process to do with lifting grass. So, like, cut it from 22 minutes to, to 18 minutes, like, to 15 minutes, and still 
in the end, although I think it's like strong work and probably the most radical I've ever done, it lacks of structure. Right? And so with the runt, that was 10 years later, 10, 12 years later after that, and uh, I became a teacher in bet uh, between the two films. And so I had to, as becoming a teacher, I had to reflect upon the medium. Probably similar, like you becoming a journalist, you have to reflect upon the medium. And I came up with a number of questions that seemed to be relevant for the process of crafting the stuff uh, that seem to be the same no matter which field I'm working, no matter if I work in the commercial field for the children, for the, the grown-ups, there seem to be like a couple of crucial questions that should be sorted out before you start executing the thing, uh, which is like, for example, what the f is it all about, right? I'd call it the center picture and the center question, right? If you got a question running, connect with a, qu a question with the audience, I think you got a good thing going. It gives you the backbone, like, will the little boy stay in the jungle sort of thing. It's a question, it's, you know, because it's a question, it involves you. And so, with the runt, I try to do the same thing with my work that I expect from the students to do with their work. So I'd ask myself these questions. And it was a, a long process, developing the, <coughs> the narrative of the runt. It was, first of all, it was, a, first the film was about two brothers. Then there was a swift of character. Then the, the epic thing that would have spread over 20 years all came down to that one year where the uh, rabbit is born and the rabbit is killed, you know. And, like, and, and the question would be like, sort of, will he kill the rabbit, right? So you have that question. That gave me like freedom. Once you get like the question, you connect like sort of, then you can be more loose. You can say like, there's just imaginative scenes. There's scenes that not necessarily like push the narrative forward, but just like keep you in a certain mindset. You know, you know what I mean? Like sort of, you know, once, once you've got a strong structure, it gives you the freedom. It's like, it's like the opposite of what people might expect. People might expect, ah, the whole structure thing, it's like, oh, it's limited, it li it's limiting me too much. But, well, like, we lived in grass shows, like, like, sort of, as there's no structure, there's almost no freedom. It's just a painful process, and, like, sort of get the thing together. Yeah. Once you've got a structure you're comfortable with, in that you almost could do whatever you want. It's like you could discover an ocean within it. And th so that was... The, that, so there is a connection between we lift in grass and the runt, but I think the artistic journey to is a completely different one, almost like an opposite one. And so between those was Ring of Fire. Yeah. And, uh, and you mentioned there was like a story behind that that came to be. Yeah, there's a story behind that. Yeah. What it basically is, it that brought me to my limit, because. I could not work the same way as I used to work. All the old tricks would not work anymore. Like, as I told you before, with the lift, we lived in grass, it was an unconscious process. The strength of the whole thing lies in the unconsciousness. It lies in intuition. It lies in sort of, I, I feel that and it must be right, right? Or, or 
or I feel that this is wrong, so it must be wrong. So with Ring of Fire, who was, which was like a pretentious approach in the beginning, and I was full of hybrids, I was a young man, you know, like first little success, but I felt like a man walking the moon. Some journalist came along and said, what are you going to do next? I said, I'm going to do a Wesson. <laughs> Knowing shit about nothing, right? Okay, like, uh, and then it's like I could read that stuff in the newspapers, and people would come along and say, like, "Hi, how's the Western doing?" So you know, and it started out. I just do a movie about what's going on at the moment, and what was going on at the moment is I had this friend of mine, a nasty guy, and we were painting the town every night. Drop the LSD look for the girls so I had started doing these drawings of these two guys going in a bazaar I thought this is nice right this is interesting and I wanted that whole sexual bazaar world I wanted it to be as rich as possible so I had wrote these ads to the art schools and to the prisons and everything so like send send me your pictures of your sexual desire right and I got pile like that right? and I would I, I, I try to distillate a number of about 30 or 40 characters based on that descriptions and that made in the end that made the this bizarre in ring of fire bizarre sexual sexual fantasies then like sort of uh, as this guy was becoming a very close friend he was like sort of my, but he was my relationship, right? I, uh, I had met his wife. Like he was living his the, the day life, night life thing. So I met his wife. Wife fell in love with me, fell in love with the wife, and I started an affair with the wife of my best friend. I, I I did what you what what people say you should not do, and what I would have said you should not do. But once you're in the situation, it's a different cup of tea, right? So that thing was going on. And so I was having that affair. The guy found, found out at the moment of the first kiss. Yeah. First secret kiss, guy coming in. But we still continued our routines, right? So all that, all that stuff went into Ring of Fire. And I had money for the movie, like more money than I probably would have needed. So I'd started hiring people, animating the sexual characters, animating the water woman, you know, then go and uh, love the water woman in the real life, get like some more problems, try to get the problems in the narrative, all that stuff, right? I ended up after two years, I was in a complete mess, absolute mess. I wouldn't know what to do with that thing, right? Every, people started inking and scratching. I had no story and no concept. The whole process of working intuitively definitely came to a limit. And you see, like, and I, was, I always was thinking, sort of, as the stuff is so personal, you know, I took it really personal. I thought, like, there, there was problems with the script. But what I thought is, I got problems, right? And it led into a spiral going down. I would wake up in the morning, eight o'clock, say, okay, right, let's go. 
after one and a half hours of like sort of running in cycles and can't sort it out, you know, I was so powerless. I'd like went back back to bed. And this would go on for a long while, for half a year, right? And so it went like the producer found out and like sort of my outside world and the finances of the movie, they found out like this guy, there must be some crisis going on, right? So one night this producer was phoning me up and he said, like, I tell you what, you can do that movie in five years if you want to. I'm open, I'll be there. Yeah? You can drop that movie now. You know, I won't mind, no problem. Yeah? But I gotta know by tomorrow morning what you're going to do, right? Because we cannot go, we cannot go on like that. Make up your mind. Drop it or not, right? And so I was, I was sitting there, I was, like this other guy was there. We were smoking a joint and I seriously considered dropping the thing. This friend, he could, he told, told me, you know, sometimes it's a brave thing to drop something. And so I seriously considered that. And I thought, okay, so if I drop it now, what shall I do with my life then? And I thought up about like all the alternatives. And none of these alternatives were better than finishing the movie. And from that on, it just became very simple, very, very pragmatic. I thought, like, I will not do a big masterpiece now, you know. I will not change the world. This film won't save my life. But I just will do it the best way I can. That's it. Right? And I, I took the best end I could find. Because it was all lying around for years. And it was only, only just saying, like, Drop that, get that, here, that, here, boom, do it. And everything was smooth from then on. I tried to do consciously what I used to do unconsciously. Which is, I think, if you look at other people, it seems to be quite normal, you know. I mean, like, you got to step out of yourself, reflect on what, like you said before, step out of yourself, reflect on what's going on. You're not the center anymore, you know. Everything's all right from there on. In the end, after the picture was finished, I was not 100% satisfied because it's got frozen. Right, it happens sometimes, it freezes. With all the ink and scratch and precise blah, blah, blah. <coughs> so I needed something to get it alive again. Music. So I phoned up the guy. Now, meanwhile, this relationship with that woman, it broke up, right? Uh, both sides. Uh, broke up with the guy, guy's wife, he divorced the wife, broke, broke up with me. So I phoned up the guy and I said, like, you want to do the music? He said, like, what the fuck do you think? I said, like, yeah, like, that's, that's what I need. You know, that's what I need. <laughs> and he did that music, and that music, that's what gets the film alive. It's not the pictures. The pictures just give you the information. But the music, that's like all the emotions. And he put in all his rage and all the grand epic feeling and all the juice. He put it all in. Singing choirs and we gotta we gotta sing in saw. You know the water the water woman? Remember the water woman? Oh, yeah. Give the water. She's gotta sing in saw. We've looked out for the one guy in Germany who could play the singing saw because we got a composition, he got to hit the notes, 
And then we search for the piano. You know, the wooden man, he plays the piano. And we look for dozens of pianos, all too clean. And then the bar just just around my office is the old, scruffy, Spanish, nasty guy. It's like we went in there having a beer, and the guy said, like, well, there seems to be a piano over there. Like, so, is it a piano? The guy said, oh, it's a piano nobody played for 15 years. Opened the thing, hit the note. It was, that was the piano. And you can hear it, so it's completely out of tune, you know. And it's got the, it's got like this, this honky tonk twang that you can. And he played that thing. He played it like the wooden man. I remember so remember play, play that thing. And like, that's a, that's a piano. It was in a way the creating the music was in a way equal than creating the pictures. You know, everything had to fit somehow. Has to. There were references within within the sound that have to link to each other. Um, and that was it. That was it. The thing was out then in 2000. It's for me. It's like the most. Although it it looks so, it looks powerful. But really, it's the most fragile film. I've I think from from what I've seen and from what I, what I when I look at the audience, the reaction of the audience and stuff. It's like sometimes it's on look the must the right right hour, right time of the day. It's like. Boom. Still strong. After all these years, still strong. Sometimes it's just a lame, a lame sock, right? A lame, disturbing sock with you. Pretentious piece of crap, right? And it very much depends on the mood. So it's like sort of like other, like other, these are, this other film, like The Runt. This is much more stable, you know. Like you can watch it, you can watch it in different moods, and it will have sort of the same effect. But with this Western movie. It can go either way. That's my experience. And sometimes I feel quite ashamed of having done such a thing. But sometimes, it's just like... You see, like, it's funny, like five years ago, probably I've seen that thing and I thought, oh, it's aging, it's not aging very well. But I just watched it recently. And I thought, yes, it speaks about sexuality in 1999. Right? It does that thing, it, you know. Did you find that audiences were receptive to that element of it, that they appreciated the sexual undertones? Well, it, I mean, like, when the thing came out, it had an effect, you know, like, it created some sort of wow, but it also created a, it created a what the fuck. Yeah. You know, I got, like, many nasty letters. People would still write letters in these days, and especially from feminists. But what happened then? Is like sort of there was other feminists who really loved the film, yeah. right? And they said like sort of like, the ones say like sort of what's that like what's that treatment, right? About women, and the other said like well actually it's quite sensitive treatment of women, right? And so you had you had both sides, I think. All in all, you see I've never won any audience award in my life. <laughs> <laughs> never, never. <laughs> I know, usually you run around the festivals, you meet people, you usually just meet people who like your stuff, but there's much more people that you don't meet that don't like your stuff, and I, I'm very aware of that, that there's much more people who don't like my stuff.
that that's the ones who will like it. It's always been like that. Probably never changed. That was Andreas Akedi talking about Ring of Fire, his film from 2000, the second part of his country trilogy of films. And uh, you can check out his work at hakedi.de and uh, filmbuilder.de. And that, I believe, brings us to the end of our podcast series, Intimate Animation, Series 1. Have you had fun, Laura? Yes. Excellent. What was your favorite? This one. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) She's pointing to the genital jousting. No! (laughs) Ring of Fire. Ring of Fire is my favorite film. Not of all time, but... But it's up there. Yeah, it's in the top ten. Well, I'm glad we were able to include it. So this film is actually online in full. Uh, film Builder have it up in HD. Looks fantastic. Uh, you can check it out on YouTube and uh, various other places, um, I'm sure. So if you haven't seen the film, it's uh, definitely worth a watch. So yes, thank you to Andreas and thank you to everyone who's been involved in this series. Thank you to Laurie Malapad Traverse, Rick Abushi, Veronica El Montano, Manuela Lewenberger, Anna Ginsberg, and uh, Michaela Pavlatova. It's been a lot of fun. And we look forward to bringing you Series 2 in 2017 that's all from us don't forget to visit squiggly.com for all your animation goodness there's lots of uh, interesting stuff up there this week nice interview with Diana Bobswin whose film uh, I Like Girls is doing the rounds now it was adapted from the comic book On Loving Women it's about women discovering their affection for other women which makes sort of sense to plug into part of this podcast because yeah, it's about that. Well, well we'll have her on next series I believe. Until then, you can check out the written interview there, as well as all the other reviews, interviews, features, all that good stuff. Squiggly.com. We're on Twitter at Squiggly, Instagram at Squiggly Animation, Facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine, and uh, I'm on Twitter at Benno Mitchell. Laura is at LB Cowley. That's all from myself and Laura Beth. Thank you for joining us. We will see you again soon. <laughs>